Here's the question I have for you. If your prayer life is the evidence of your love and your relationship with God, then how is that relationship doing? If your prayer life is the evidence, at least one of them, of your relationship with God, then how is that relationship doing? So if you're young and you're not married, I would dare you to try this challenge. When you're dating somebody, try never talking to them and see how it works. And if you're married, whether it's a year, whether it's today, Devin and Taylor just got married today. She's on our worship team, part of our worship ministries. Maybe you've been married 10 years, 30 years, 42 years. It doesn't matter. Let me just ask you this. Take this challenge. Try not talking to your spouse for a month and see what happens. Now, I think you all understand. I hope you don't actually do that. You're doomed if you do. I hope you don't actually do that. My point is a little bit provocative in telling you this. Without communication, no relationship thrives. And prayer is our communication with God, yet it is most corrupted so often and so anemic so many other times. So religions all over the world feature prayer as a central aspect of their practice. So let me give you a few examples. Christian science... Prayer is seen as a power that can heal the illusions of this world, bring people into a clear focus of the spiritual creation. That's Christian science. If you're a Muslim, probably not a lot of you here that are, but if you're talking to a Muslim, they face Mecca five times a day. They pray a brief ritualistic prayer called the Salat. They've got to keep specific body positions. They have to have absolutely correct pronunciation or otherwise that prayer is rendered invalid. If you're part of the Baha'i or know somebody that's part of the Baha'i religion, they have to face a certain direction when saying their daily obligatory prayers. I mean, I could go on. Let me just give you a couple more examples. How about the Tibetan Buddhists? They utilize prayer wheels called mantras. And these wheels, they hold them straight up. You can see these pictures on YouTube. You've probably seen them in some movies. You spin them clockwise, and the mantra has to be said and repeated before and after turning the wheel, or you're not going to gain any merit by the use of the prayer wheel. In fact, if you turn the the wheel, it brings a person, they believe, purification and merit. They se- it sends that prayer to their God. That's what the Buddhists believe. But let's give you one more example. We could probably do this all night. Hindus utilize mantras, invocations, chants, fire rituals as they pray to Brahman. That's their God. That is made manifest in several lower forms of the Hindu pantheon. That just means a whole network of gods and goddesses. So every religion features prayer as part of their system. Well, let's go to the Jewish people because that's where we're going to be focusing. The Jewish people had an incredibly high view of prayer. And I really want you to hear that. The Jewish people at the time of Christ and today have an incredibly high view of prayer. So to them, prayer was the channel through which the strength and the grace of God were brought to bear on their troubles and their problems. I think we understand that, right? That's not very different for us. 
They had prayers for light, for rain, for darkness, traveling, for good news, before and after each meal. They had prayers when they saw a comet flash through the night sky. Here's what the Jewish people teach, and here's what they practice when they eat a meal. This is actually something I would encourage all of us to learn to do. They never, ever thank God for the food. They don't bless the food. So I would really encourage you to think deeply on this. When they go to pray before their meal, they don't bless the food. They don't ask God to bless the food. What they do is they bless God. They adore God. They thank God. They exalt the God who provided for them. And that's a really very vertical way to pray. It puts God in the position as the one worthy to receive praise and honor. See, the intention for the Jewish person was that everything in life would be brought into the presence of God. Now, right there defines for us part of what prayer is. You ready? Here it is. If you're writing this down, or even if you just want to memorize this, I think this is a very good way to understand prayer. Prayer brings God into everything in life. Prayer brings God into everything that we experience in life. Great is prayer, said the rabbis, greater than all good works. This is the emphasis that the Jewish people had on prayer. Another rabbinical father prayed, the one who prays surrounds his house with a wall stronger than iron. They believed that prayer, almsgiving, fasting, remember these three, you're going to see them one after another in this portion of Matthew chapter 6. Last week, almsgiving, this week and next prayer, and then fasting. They believed those three practices were the most pious practices you could do. They gained for you righteousness. Now, of course, we don't believe that. Righteousness comes by Christ. He gives it to us when we trust in him. But the Jewish people believed that if you learned to pray, if you gave generously to the poor, if you fasted regularly, you can make yourself righteous. In fact, all three of them come together. Look at the passage on the screen from Luke chapter 18. Jesus is preaching. He says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he gave the picture of a praying Pharisee who fasted regularly, who gave a portion of all that he had. Those are the three most religious practices to a Jewish mind. But unsurprisingly, over time, rabbinical tradition robbed prayer of its intimacy and its power. Now, let me tell you a little bit how they did this. Now, a lot of what I'm going to do in this message is give you quite a bit of background so that it colors the text, so that you understand what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it. So can I encourage you, listen with a historical mindset. As I try to get you back into that culture, into that climate, to understand it. See, back in that day, prayers were almost always memorized. They could be uttered without even thinking. Every Jewish person was taught to recite the Shema. 
Here's what the Shema go. Here's the essence of it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They had to recite it before 9 a.m. and after 9 p.m., morning and evening, every single day. And then on top of that, they all learned, even from little kids, when they went into the, the, what we call elementary school at six years old, they were taught these 18 prayers. It was a collection of them. And it even continues with modern Jews. If you have a Jewish friend, they know likely these prayers. And they repeated them daily. Now, I'm not going to list those 18 prayers, but they memorized 18 prayers. And if they couldn't remember them, they had a summary prayer that would capture all 18 of them. You see, prayer became a work. And what do I mean by that? It became a way that they believed God would be pleased with them. Now, whenever you and I do something thinking that God is pleased with you, that you've gained merit with him, that you've gained favor because of your works, then you're, what, you're, you're doing what's called works-based righteousness. You see, you and I can't do anything that merits God's favor and forgiveness. Jesus is the only one that could. And because Jesus has done that for us, dying on the cross, as our substitute, he gave us his righteousness, he took from us our sin, he made us new creations in Christ, the very moment that you put your faith in him, because you're a new creature in Jesus, a new person in Jesus, with a new heart, with the Spirit of God in that heart, learning to live in a way that's pleasing to him, then you stop doing things thinking that if I just do this, go to church, give a lot of money, be a really nice person, if I just do these things, then I'm going to go to heaven. Well, there's no such thing in the gospel. The only reason that you will be going to heaven is if you put your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's it. So when I talk to you about what the Jewish people had done with prayer, that it had become a work, they believed that it earned and demonstrated their righteousness. It made them right with the Lord. And if they did it for a whole lifetime, they earned the merit that when they stood before the Lord at the end of their lives, God would say, welcome to paradise because of the way you lived. See, prayer to them was of highest importance, but it had become something other than what God wanted. So here we go. You ready? Matthew chapter 6. Now we're ready to jump into the text, giving you a little bit of background on what the Jewish people had done with prayer. And here's what he says. Here's what Jesus preached. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. That's verse 5. So I'm going to give you four points in this outline, super simple, nothing is complicated in this sermon. Here's the first point. They were praying to get honor. This is what he condemns. They're praying to get honor. He doesn't, he doesn't instruct his disciples if you pray. Now look at this again. Verse 5, when you pray. Now can I tell you what Jesus is doing? He's preaching to his disciples. Around the disciples are hundreds, some would estimate thousands, of people on that slope overlooking Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. But he's preaching to his disciples, and what he's preaching is, here's my commands for you. 
You remember, he's already preached the characteristics of the Christian. We call them the, bad, the Beatitudes. And then the, the calling of the Christian. And then the conduct of the Christian. But now it's a new section of the sermon. These are the commands. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, and you're going to live in God's kingdom, this is the way you must live. It's the way that I must live. And one of the ways that we must live last week was to give generously to the poor. Today, we've got to learn to pray to our Heavenly Father. So he says, not if you pray, but when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, you remember from last week, that word hypocrite didn't mean, Jesus didn't mean what we mean by it. We mean somebody that, that says one thing and does another. You get that accusation lobbed at a lot of Christians in the church, right? You've heard it. I've heard it. That's not how Jesus meant it. What Jesus meant is somebody that's doing the right thing with the wrong motive. That's a little bit different. In fact, it's a lot different. It's doing the right thing with the wrong motives. Now, can I say something very, very bluntly and very wide sweeping? And I'm swept up in this as well. I don't know if you're catching that, but doing the right things with the wrong motives just implicated, I think, virtually every single one of us. The why we do things is as important to Jesus as what we do, because he has full view of the heart. So here, Jesus is not condemning praying in public. That's a good thing. In fact, he has done that. What he's condemning is praying in public with the wrong motivation. And the motivation was, well, look what it says. For they love to stand, verse 5, and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So they're doing the right thing, but they have the wrong motivation. What they want is praise. What they want is honor. What they want is to be seen by people and viewed as, wow, that's a very godly person. It's the right thing with the wrong motive. Now, I've told you that devout Jews prayed in the morning before 9. I, let me correct what I told you the second half of that. They prayed in the evening around 3 o'clock. Sometimes they even prayed at noon. They had three times, two of them definitely, and the most pious of the Jews the third one was at noon. And you get to see this, by the way, in Acts chapter 3. Look what it says. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So they started their day at 6 a.m. The third hour, 9 a.m. Sixth hour, noon. Ninth hour, 3 p.m. So this was the time of prayer. And the trumpets would be sounded. Those are the shofars, the ram's horns. And that was the time for the daily afternoon sacrifice. And that was the time for people all over Jerusalem because you would hear those horns echoing all around the city. And if you were in a synagogue up in Galilee, 80 miles north of Jerusalem, they had ram's horns as well. And they would sound at 3 p.m. And that was the time to begin your afternoon prayers. And here's the really interesting thing. Regardless of where you were, and regardless of what you were doing, once that horn sounded, you were to stop everything and begin to pray. Even if you were near street corners, look at your text, verse 5. Now, can I point you back to verse 2? Look at verse 2 in chapter 5, where the word street occurs. That means a very narrow street or an alley. 
But go back to verse 5, street corners, that's not the same word. This is a different word that Matthew selected. And this one means a very wide street, what we might call a plat or an open square. It was an intersection where there was a lot of commotion and a lot of people, a lot of traffic. And so here's what the hypocrites were doing. Now watch me for a moment. They're walking down the street. They know the horn's about to sound and they're timing their walk, they're timing their journey from one point to another to coincide right by that wide intersection, right when that horn would blow. And then all of a sudden, when everybody stops to pray, there would be the hypocrites at the busiest sections of the, of the city or the town, and everybody could see them. And they would pray standing, and they would have their hands out and their palms up. That was a traditional way. And their heads were bowed and they would stand there for a lengthy time and they'd be reciting these 18 prayers they would be repeating the Shema as loud as their voice could carry and all the children all the people around them as the prayers go on and on and on were amazed at how well this person could pray how much of these prayers they had memorized and glory and honor were coming to them See, this is what Jesus is condemning, and look what he says at the end of verse 5. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And if you remember from last week, what that simply means is, yeah, they got their honor. They got their praise from other people. They look really good in their eyes, but that's the only reward they're going to get. Their heavenly Father has no reward, has no blessings for them. But there's a better way, and Jesus teaches his disciples, and he teaches us what it is. Here's point number two. Pray, praying should be to gain depth. Praying should be to gain depth. Look at verse six. But when you pray, now he's speaking, the you is the disciples, the you is us believers, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Now, there's a theologian that studied that word room, and he, said, and he, and he, understood, he, he understood through archaeological evidence that this was almost always a storeroom where treasures might be kept. So when Jesus says, go into your room, what he's saying is, go into that most inner, guarded, private part of your homes and shut the door so that nobody's watching but your father so that your motivation could be pure and right now does that mean every single time that we pray we've got to find that inner room that's not what Jesus means what he's doing is he's saying to his disciples and he's saying to us your motivations must be pure this is how you live in my kingdom you got to have hearts that want your father's gaze not other people's. You know, some believers overreacting to this have banned public praying. You know, there's churches where they will not pray in public. Yet Jesus prayed in public, so that's obviously not the correct response. The point, again, is that hypocrites put their prayer mask on in public, and they were winning the applause. People were applauding them. Whether it was literally clapping or in their hearts, they were winning the applause of, of those around them and forfeiting the applause of the Heavenly Father. 
Now, I'm going to pick up on kind of how I started this, or at least how I was speaking a while ago. When you go on a date, whether you're married or not, ladies, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this because while it's not only your gender that would struggle with this, it is predominantly yours. Let's say, do you want to go on a date to a restaurant that has wall-to-wall screens with every sport imaginable playing? And your boyfriend or your husband is glued to the screen. Would that really feel like an intimate date for you? Now, I think the answer is obvious, and I'm trying to get you to understanding the power of prayer. Prayer is most satisfying when our souls are in communion with just God, where there are no distractions. I always get people telling me, well, I pray all day. Well, I'm driving down the road, and I'm thinking, well, that's fantastic. You probably should on a lot of these highways around here. Keep praying. You need to be. But there's a prayer that is just between you and God when there is no other stimulus coming into your life, when there's no other things catching your eye, where you've put your phone away in Facebook. I mean, how many times have you gotten up to pray and to have time in the Word of God and you say, you know what, I'm just going to check my email or my Facebook and all of a sudden, 20, 30 minutes later, you don't have time anymore. See, there's a power of secluded intimacy with God. And this is where Jesus is going. Prayer, even if it's in a park and you're sitting on a bench or maybe getting up early before the sun comes up and before anybody else is up, you lose sleep, you sacrifice it in order to have that time with God that no one else can intrude into. Or even like Susanna Wesley, who had, I think, 15 or 18 children, who would pray in the middle of the living room with her apron over her head. That was the only time that her children knew, you must be quiet, moms in prayer. Listen, do you have that time where it's just, you and God. You're not driving. You're not looking at anything. You're not in front of your computer. You don't have commotion going around you. You have sacrificed all of that in order to just have you and God. That will be a litmus test for your relationship with him. See, God is jealous for our exclusive attention. And he wants to work in the very deepest part of our souls. And prayer is the most intimate moment a believer can have with God on this earth. And I'm going to say that again. I'm going to push that down into your mind a little bit further. There's not a more intimate time you can have with God. You know, I often ask couples this question in counseling. Do the two of you pray together? Now, I don't have a statistical analysis to present to you of the answers, but I'm going to ballpark it at less than 10%. Actually have a regular time of prayer with their spouse. And when I talk to husbands about this, it's almost always, and I'm telling you, it's almost always the wives have been asking for it. The wives have been wanting this. 
And when I ask the husbands, what goes through you when your wife asks you, can we pray? Almost always, they tell me there's a flutter of anxiety. And what I explain to them is this. You want to know what the most intimate thing you can do in your marriage? What you think it is probably isn't what's most intimate. It's prayer. And I'll tell you why. It's because your heart is laid bare before your spouses, and before God. You want to know why prayer in marriages is so difficult? I believe that's the number one reason. It's not just sheer, uh, sheer lack of discipline. It's not we don't have time. We make time for the things we want. It's literally, I believe, the fear of being that intimate with your spouse before God. There's nothing deeper than prayer. And this is where God is moving us. Now let's look at verse 6 again. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you get into that closet. You get into that daily time where it's just you and God and no other. God sees that time. He sees your heart. He sees you in your most vulnerable place in the very bottom of your heart in secret. He will reward you. He will search your heart. He will search your mind. Now listen, this is what we are afraid of, but he will find those motivations which are pleasing to him and he will speak his favor over them and he will find your motivations that aren't pleasing to him and he will begin working you out, them out of your heart. This is the power of prayer. If you've got an issue in your life, then you can't seem to get a handle on it. Almost always, you don't have a deep, abiding, beautiful, intimate prayer life. You want the power to have a heart that changes and shifts. It's the Word of God coming down deep so that you can speak back to God in intimate communion. See, the fountain of deep knowledge and familiarity with God lies in the avenue of prayer. And his full attention and intention is given to his praying children. I gotta say that again because you're gonna, you're gonna miss that too easily. God's full attention, he sees in secret, when we climb into that prayer closet, whatever your closet is, and his intention, his will and his purpose for you, his purpose for me. All of that is made a reality in prayer. And when we don't pray, when we don't have a thriving, intimate prayer life, you rob yourself, you forfeit his attention and intention. Those are treasures. You want to know what he rewards you with? Well, there will be a reward in eternity, but there's a reward here now. They are treasures. The Holy Spirit, here they are. The Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit. You're my child, and he's your father. He witnesses to the strong assurance of the Heavenly Father's love for you. If you doubt God's love for you, when things self-destruct in your life, listen, you've got to go to prayer. It's the Holy Spirit will bear witness of his love for you. He lifts the light of his face upon us. He gives us peace. He refreshes our souls. He satisfies our hunger. He quenches our thirst. Yet even in that secret room, our hearts could be freighted with the wrong motives. And this is where Jesus goes. Look at verse 7. Point number 3, praying to get control. We love control. He says, and when you pray, he's speaking to the disciples, they're in your secret room, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now here's a fun fact. Heap up empty phrases, four words in the English, all one word in the Greek. It's just one word. This, by the way, is the fun part of Greek. English is sometimes just thoroughly inadequate to translate it. So you have to pile on a lot of words. You've got to use a lot of uh, hyper hyperbolic uh, terminology. But this is the way that Greek is. It's an absolutely beautiful language. But that one word describes the type of prayer that is a flood of mechanical and mindless words. So if you're like me, now listen, I'm, I'm preaching to me. Because this, of all my church, all my Christian disciplines, is probably my most difficult one. So I'm really glad to be studying this, and God is speaking this to me. But how many times have all of us been praying, and it's almost like you come out of a fog or a stupor, and you don't even remember what you're saying? Your mind is split thinking about the schedule coming up and the appointments that you're nervous about or the things that happened yesterday or the things you hope you could do this weekend. You're thinking about, gee, I hope that boy likes me or that girl, I hope we can, how can I ask her out? And I mean, you're trying to pray. You're doing the right thing, but the motivation is wrong. You've got to get your heart in tune to your lips. So heaping up empty phrases well, in part means thoughtless praying. It's the kind of praying that is done mindlessly rather than intimate, familiar relationships. Boy, Denise always, uh, she is, I think she's psychic sometimes. She knows when I'm really not listening to her. I thought I mastered this. I've counseled for 27 years, I think. I thought I mastered the right timing for a nod or a monosyllabic grunt that can keep her, you know, convinced that I'm listening. Man, she could see right through that. It's not pleasing to her. It's not pleasing to me when she does it. It's not pleasing to God either. So the Gentiles, now listen, he was talking about the Jews in verse 5. Now he's talking about the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And they're known for believing that all you got to do is say it enough. All you got to do is is, you know, just repeat it often enough and you're going to influence your deity. That's literally what they believed. You just say it over and over and over. I'll give you an example from the Old Testament. Remember Baal? Do you remember Elijah up on Mount Carmel and this big confrontation with 400 prophets of Baal? Here's what the prophets of Baal, pagans, were doing. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. That's all they kept saying. Oh, Baal, answer us over and over and over. Well, that was what they believed. You had to say it enough time because your deity wanted to, wanted to see if you really mean it. You get to see it in the, in the New Testament, too. A Acts chapter 19, verse 34, the city of Ephesus is in full riot. The Ephesians are rioting against the Apostle Paul. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the goddess Diana. That's what they kept saying. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over for two hours. Thinking, really believing, that once you say it enough, you'll prove your sincerity and your deity will finally move. Well, that was bleeding into the Jewish culture. See, Jesus does not condemn here repetition. That just means to repeat something. 
What he's condemning is mindless praying that's trying to manipulate God. And we all do this. You pray with enough passion or you pray with enough evidence for why God ought to answer your prayer and maybe then you can get God to deliver your request. There's been a tendency among Jews and Gentiles among us to think that long, ardent praying just works best. There was one rabbi, his name was Levi, who taught whoever is long in prayer is heard. Not only that, but if the correct formula in prayer was used, you say the necessary things like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and don't get supplication ahead of any of the other ones. That's the Acts model. If you get any of them backwards, then your prayer short circuits. So you got to start all over again. A-C-T-S. That's the evangelical model of the formulaic prayer. Another Jewish rabbinical father said this, he who multiplies prayer must be heard. So what Jesus is condemning is empty, meaningless repetition that you think will motivate God to give you what you want. Now listen, communion with God, intimacy with God, that's not even on the radar of the goals of that kind of praying. It's trying to receive a favorable answer. And that kind of prayer springs from a heart that is desiring to manipulate God. So you're doing the right thing, but you get the wrong motivation. You know, it creeps into our prayer lives. You know, how many of us, don't raise your hand, but how many, times have had, how many of us have had that little sneaky, whispery thought that if you don't pray in the morning, you're going to have a terrible day? Or if things start falling apart in a day, the first thought is, you know what? I didn't have my time with the Lord today, and he's making me pay. That is not what God does. Or if I don't pray before eating, I'm going to choke on the food or get sick. If I don't remember to get the right order, that, that door, adoration, confession, you know, thanking, and then finally supplication, then the prayer's not going to work like it could have. It's a formula that you think has the best chance for God to answer accordingly. But again, Jesus exposes a corrupt motivation, and he says it cannot be in any of his disciples' hearts. So he goes to point number four, and our final point, praying in order to gain peace. He says in verse eight, do not be like them. Now here it's the Gentiles. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, fun fact number two, you ready? And I would actually take note of this and study it tonight, maybe tomorrow, sometime this week. Can you try to remember to do this? I'm going to tell you how many times the word Father appears in the Sermon on the Mount. But I want you to go and underline them in your Bibles. You really need to underscore Father, 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 Father. You've got to get the fatherhood of God woven into your heart. You will not have a faith that is robust if you do not have a God that is your Father. Seven times so far in the Sermon on the Mount. We're only in chapter 6, verse 8. Seven times so far, Jesus has called God Father. By the time he's done with this sermon, at the end of chapter 7, it'll be 16 times. 
And so when the Bible repeats itself, when the Bible, what you need to understand is the Greek language didn't have underlining, it didn't have bolding and italics, it didn't have exclamation points, it used repetition. When there's something that we desperately need to get for our faith to be most strong, you see repetition. So underline all 16 of those this week. God is our Father, and He cares for us as sons and daughters. And when His children meet often with Him in prayer, there's a deep persuasion as to the extent of the love of our Heavenly Father. Listen, if you don't pray intimately, if you don't pray deeply, if you don't pray often with no commotion, you're not going to have a robust view of the Father in heaven and His love for you. You cannot. Prayer is when He persuades you. It's not memorizing all this. Listen, you know I'm a big fan of the Word of God. We preach it every week. Just memorizing every one of these verses and studying theology, yes, that puts the framework, the foundation in your life. But if you want the framing to be done, you want the rooms to be filled out and decorated and drapes and furniture and appliances, you want all that, then it's prayer. And the Father will persuade you through the Spirit of God that He loves you. You don't need a babble. You don't need to try to convince God of anything. I'm a fan of short praying. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 5 says, do not speak long when you're in the house of God. And when you're before him, remember he's above and you're below. You don't need to bring a lot of words. Be careful not to utter any careless thing. So you don't need to babble. You don't need to try to manipulate God. You don't need to convince God that you really desperately need him to move. He already knows. He's your heavenly father. John Stott said this. He is neither ignorant that we need to instruct him nor indifferent so that we need to persuade him. That is not the kind of father we have. And this doesn't mean that we don't ask of God for things. But it does mean that we don't try and persuade God through long, passionate justified, reason-giving, praying. It's to come to our Heavenly Father already convinced that He knows what we need, that He loves us, that He will provide when the time is right in a way that is right. It is a trustful prayer that replaces anxiety with peace, and it convinces you that all is right in my life. Why? Because my Heavenly Father cares for me. It is an absolute core of intimacy, the word trust. If you're married, you know it. Tell you what, I have never, ever met a couple that had learned how to develop deep intimacy and communion in their relationship that did not trust each other. See, prayer develops this trust. It leads you to depths of intimacy. Prayer that tries to manipulate God comes from a heart that doesn't trust Him, that doesn't believe He knows our needs, believes He doesn't have the desire to meet them. But prayers that come from hearts of trust are full of peace. It's a prayer that comes from a lip, from a set of lips that's connected to a heart that's truly saying, your will be done. Here's what I would ask you to do, and we're almost done. Here's what I would encourage you to do. This almost sounds terrible, so I want to be careful that you're hearing me 
really carefully. But I would encourage you to take two days this week and see if you can go all throughout the day without asking God of anything. And instead, adore Him. Instead, repeat back to Him what the Word of God has taught you about Him. Don't ask for help for your friends, for your families, for you. Take two days where you will realize, and I have done this, and I have realized immediately, I am so clogged with self-oriented praying. God, give me. I need this. Would you provide? He already knows everything I need. He's my father. Instead, go into prayer on those two days with the intention, God, I want to hear from you. And I've got my word, I've got the Bible open right in front of me, and all the while that I'm praying, I'm going to be hearing you pointing me to places in Scripture, and as soon as a, something comes to mind, I'm going to find it in the Scripture, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read it back to you. I'm going to repeat it back to you, because there's no better prayer than the one saturated in the Word of God. It's His Word. If you try this this week, you're going to be shocked at how hard it is to pray without you in the middle. And yet when you do it, you will be so blessed. He, his persuasion will pour into your hearts and you will know that you have been with God. Friends, we do not pray to get praise from others. We do pray, however, to gain depth with God. And we do not pray to get control of our God. However, we do pray to gain peace from our God. So Christian, may this week be full of deep and intimate times of prayer with your heavenly Father. Amen? Let's pray.